Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Good morning. Uh, If this is your first Sunday here, welcome. Trying out a church is really risky. And thank you for taking that risk with us today. I'm Mary, and I'm the children and family pastor here at LBCF, which means that most Sundays I get to be in the children's hallway with the kiddos, and I get to see them grow in their faith and understanding and in height. And it's just as amazing as it sounds. Um, And then every once in a while, just to sweeten the pot, I get to come in here because I'm also a total Bible nerd and cuckoo for Christ, and I get to do like this deep dive into scripture with y'all, and it's all so amazing. And we're going to be continuing our sermon series on Jesus, learning about how do we live like Jesus? What does that look like? I was thinking about how the title of Christian can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For some, Christian means... um, generosity, and welcome, and belonging, and love. And for others, the word Christian can conjure up images of tribalism, and othering, judgment, and self-righteousness. For a lot of us sitting in this room, it's kind of a little of both. We've experienced all of it. But I love that historically and essentially, the word Christian means a little Christ, that we all get to learn to live the way he did. We get to love the way that he did. And that is a beautiful and grounding thing for me. And today we're going to be looking at what it looks like to risk the way that Jesus risked. And here's the thing. I'm really, really bad at risk. Like, so bad. I'm like as ADHD as Tigger from Winnie the Pooh, but when it comes to anxiety and self-doubt and neuroses, I might as well be piglet. So when I'm sharing today about what it looks like to risk, like Jesus' risk, know that it's coming from a place that knows how costly and how hard and how scary risk can be. And Jesus does too, and I love that. In Hebrews 4.15, it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but we have one that's been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet is without sin. And however hard risk is, I believe that scripture does make it really clear that we are called to a life of risk. And for those of you who don't know me very well, I don't throw around the term scripture is clear very often, but I believe it is clear. Do you hear that dingling? It's my earring. Let me see if I can get it off. Okay, sorry, y'all. Um, in Jesus' parables and his conversations, my husband is just the greatest thing ever. I met him at the mall when I was 17. It was the best bargain shopping moment of my life. Um, in Jesus' parables... He talks a lot about risk and what it looks like to risk. 
there's the parable of the pounds where this nobleman, um, he gives some of his servants some money and he says, put the money to work, invest, essentially invest it and grow in it. And then he goes. And his servants, they do what they do. And when he arrives, he comes back. Some of his servants have invested in and it has doubled. And he commends them, not for their success, but for their faithfulness. And then they're rewarded, and not with more privilege, but with more responsibility. But then there is one servant, because there's always the one, right? There's the one servant who does not invest in. He says, Master, I, I knew you to be a cold and cruel man, so I was too afraid to do anything with it. So I thought the best thing to do would be to just bury it under my floorboards so it would be untouched. And here it is. And he was condemned. That is not a story about capitalism and growing money. It's a story about risk. And what you're risking in that moment is actually faithfulness. Faithfulness to follow Jesus, to take up that title of little Christ, to take up your cross and to follow. I also think it's really interesting to note that although Jesus requires risk of all of us, he doesn't require the same kind of risk from any of us. There was the rich man who asked Jesus, what do I need to do to, to earn eternal life? And Jesus said, give everything you have and give it to the poor. But for Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus um, gave half of what he owned and he made amends to the people he stole by giving them, you know, the, the wee little tax collector guy. Sorry. Um, he, he gave four times what he stole back to the people. And for that, Jesus said, salvation is on this house this day. And then there is the, the widow, the widow with the, the, the two little coins, the widow's might. And um, just to put that in perspective, that, that might that they're talking about, would it be about six minutes of work in a single day? It's not like that would have been, even for a widow, a large amount, but Jesus knew the cost that was incurred in that moment. And he said she was giving so sacrificially. So as we risk God also knows what we are capable of, and he, he asks different things from each of us. It's never the same. I never thought of connecting the word risk to Jesus, because when I think of Jesus, I'm always really quick to think of him as God, and I always tend to forget that he was just as fully man as he was fully God. And at first thought, Risking sounds counter to the nature of God to me. John Piper, who studied the Bible way more than I have, and who has a whole lot of letters behind his name, says that he doesn't believe it's possible for God to risk. He says this, God can take no risks. And the reason he can't is because essential to the meaning of risk is ignorance. You have to be ignorant in order to take risks. If you know you'll lose your life, when you do this, it's not a risk, it's a sacrifice. Risk assumes ignorance about what's coming. God cannot take a risk because he has no ignorance about what's coming. And perhaps you're in John Piper's camp and you don't think it's possible for Jesus to risk. And that's cool. You know, you're, you're in John Piper's camp. But 
I actually do think that God risks. I, I don't know what else it would be when he created humans with free wills. And then he looked at them and he loved them and said they were good. I don't know what risk is if it's not wanting to be known and to be known, to love and to be loved in return. Because love is risky. You risk getting your heart broken. You risk having the person not love you back. And God is love itself. He is the definition of it. He is the God who loved first. That seems like awfully risky business to me. He loved so much that he came to the world. He gave his son for the world because of that deep love. And then the God-man Jesus gave up some of his powers. Like, I mean, John Piper might disagree, but at the very least, he could no longer be omnipresent. Jesus was tied to that single physical body while he was here on earth. He lost some of those godly powers. He risked that because he so wanted to be here with us. And in Hebrews, it says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. He didn't come out of the womb knowing obedience. He learned it. He was practiced in it through suffering and from being a human. And so when I started to think about Jesus and risk, I started to see so many examples in the Bible, in the Gospels, about Jesus and risking. Like, you should have seen my notes. They were everywhere to begin with. But what I kept coming back to, what kept capturing my imagination again and again, and maybe it's because we're in the beginning of Lent when we are all practicing these 40 days of learning to be hungry and realizing, grappling with our humanness and longings. But I kept thinking of Jesus and his baptism and his time and temptation in the wilderness. So we're going to read this account together of Jesus's time. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, 
worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Okay, so in Sunday school, we do a thing where we wonder together. And Mr. Roger says that when you wonder, you're learning. So let's wonder together about a few things in this text. Uh, first, have you ever thought that Jesus did not come out of the womb knowing that he was God? I wonder what the process was like when Jesus learned that he was God himself. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Mary and Joseph to have a conversation with their little guy, letting him know that he was destined for really, really big things? Like, there is no um, developmentally appropriate way to have that kind of conversation. There's no book you can read. There's no Google search. Like they were just on their own. Nobody else has had to have that conversation with their child. And I wonder if Jesus's understanding of who he was and what he was called to do was in one great big aha moment or if it was in lots of little moments. I don't know any of the answers to these questions, but I wonder about all of them. These are the things I think about when I have insomnia. But I know that at some point, Jesus knew what he was called to do. And he was prepped and he was ready for ministry. And I love that the very first thing he does when he embarks on this ministry is his baptism. I love that it starts with confirmation. It doesn't come afterwards, it begins with the confirmation. Before Jesus even begins his ministry, God says to him and for all around Jesus to hear, you are my kid, I am your dad, I love you, you bring me joy. And I love that for all the variations that happen in the synoptic gospels and the different stories, the words of God right to Jesus in this moment are almost completely in, unchanged in all three of the Gospels that talk about Jesus' time in the wilderness, except for a few variations in pronouns. Can I get the slide that, so in Matthew, these are both, these are all NIV. In Matthew, it says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. In Mark, it says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And in Luke, it says the same thing. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I wonder if that moment was told over and over and over again to the disciples so that these words were so ingrained in their minds so that when these accounts were written, they all knew the exact words that were said because they heard them so many times. They so resonated in their hearts. And right after the baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness. This was the time for him to recognize his calling. And to do so, a calling has to be tested. When you know you have a calling, it has to be tested. And if you look at the scripture about 
the temptation, it's the Holy Spirit that brings him out into the wilderness. And again, this point is so significant that it's mentioned in all three of the Gospels. It is always the Holy Spirit. They all make note that it's the Spirit that is bringing Jesus into the wilderness. After his baptism and blessing comes the testing. And isn't that just the way? And then Jesus' time in the wilderness brings new things to wonder about. Up until this point in the Gospels, all the stories that would be recorded were not stories that um, the disciples would have been around to see. So we know that somebody told these stories to them. I, I think of Mary and Joseph telling Jesus' birth story to people. And what a delightful story that would be. And Jesus would be the one who would tell this story to his disciples, letting him know, this is how my ministry began. It began in this wilderness. And then I wonder how much time Jesus spent in the wilderness for those 40 days, just delighting in creation and playing with the animals and looking at sunsets and lizards and feeling that deliciously delightful sound when he got to hear his, his tummy gurgling. This is the first time the God-man Jesus got to live in the skin and bones of a human being. He got to experience all the things that he saw his beautiful, delightful children experiencing. For the very first time, he got to feel that hunger. He got to feel what loneliness felt like. And then I wonder who... Jesus first sought out when he left the wilderness. What it was like when he told that story, when he recounted it for the very first time to that first person. And I wonder how they responded to it. Because we have the privilege of being able to read these stories over and over again. We hear them so many times, we forget how weird the stories are. But these are weird stories. Like, he didn't eat for 40 days. That's a really, really long time. He was without any human interaction for 40 days. It's a really long time. And then the devil comes and he tempts him. And even within the Bible, that's an unusual thing to happen. There are not many accounts of a devil coming to test somebody. These are all weird stories. And then the temptations are a little funky too turn some rocks into food, throw yourself off a building and see what happens. I'll give you everything in the world if you just bow down. These are, these are funny, weird stories. And here's my final wondering for the day. I wonder if all the temptations and all of our own temptations actually come down to one thing. I wonder if they come down just to identity, to us knowing who we are and knowing who God is and holding tight to that in the midst of everything else, no matter what is going on. So if you notice, if we could get the, um, the scripture back up with the first temptation, because you're amazing, look at that. Um, it says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. God had already said to Jesus, you're my son. 
I am well pleased with you. He, so Jesus didn't need to prove that. Jesus was hungry, but he knew that God was going to provide for him. He didn't have to do a thing. He didn't have to prove a thing. And I love the verse that he used to resist that temptation. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knew that God's words had life. And Jesus knew that the last words that were spoken to him were, you are my child. With you, I am well pleased. And so he held on to that. And then again with the next temptation, he knew that he did not have to throw himself off a building for it to be confirmed that God cared for him because he already knew that. God had already told him that. He didn't have to prove it. And then his last temptation, which I think is the most interesting one of all, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms and essentially said to Jesus, well, you love this little world so much. You love all these silly little humans so much. I can give it all to you. You can bypass the suffering. I can make this really easy. You just have to worship me. You don't even have to die at the end. But Jesus knew that there's no shortcuts to the kingdom of heaven. And he knew that there's no ways around being human. So his identity was so firmly rooted in who God is and who God said that he is, that he could not, he would not bow down before anyone or anything except the Father. So what does this have to do with risk? There is a thing. The story of the temptation, it, it parallels the story of Eve in the garden to me. So Eve also was tempted. And that temptation also would have been a temptation of identity. It would be, you, you don't have to be human. You could be like God. In that moment, she forgot that she was good as a human because God made her human. And he delighted in that. And she thought she should do something else. She wanted more power in that moment. She forgot who God was in that moment. She forgot that he was not the good creator who loved her and delighted her in her. She thought he was keeping things from her. And so we have Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, weak with hunger, and I can imagine intensely lonely no human interaction for 40 days, I think, might be just as hard as the no food. And he showed us how to be human in that moment. He humaned better than anyone ever. Because in the face of want and hunger, he didn't forget who he is, who God said he is, and who God is. And then if we think about that parable of the pounds, uh, the servants who invested the money, they invested it freely because they knew that it was the faithfulness that the nobleman was going to commend them for. It was the faithfulness that he was going to be delighted in. And for the one who didn't invest, it was because he did not understand the heart of his master. He didn't understand that the nobleman was good and kind. He thought he was cold and cruel, and so he could not risk it. It all comes down to that identity 
I love reading about um, St. Francis of Assisi. He was this wild man uh, who lived a really wild and untethered life. But he actually came from a life of privilege and frivolity. He came from a wealthy family. He had title and connections. And he gave it all up because he wanted to live among the social outcasts. He believed that the more despised and isolated a person was, the more that person resembled Jesus in Jesus' last agonies. And he believed that in order to follow Jesus, you had to join with those who were abandoned. There's a story that I heard a really long time ago about St. Francis, that his father would come and he would verbally accost him on the road. And so St. Francis would ask a friend to come with him. And if his father would come and he would tell him that he was worthless, that all these things he was doing, it was for nothing. He, he lost everything. He would ask his friend to whisper in his other ear that he was beloved. Beloved. I love that. I love getting to see the faces of children when I tell them that there is nothing that they could do or nothing that they could ever do that could make them love that could make God love them any more or any less than he already does right now. I love the wonder and the awe and the gravity as that hits them, that reality hits them for the very first time. I love even that look of confusion when they think, could this really be true? Could that really be a thing? Could God love me no matter what, no matter how good or how bad I have been for a day. And this is because God loves us, not because of anything we have done, but because he looks at us and he says, you're lovable, you're good. Brennan Manning was this, um, this author and laicized priest and a sometimes alcoholic who sometimes was in recovery. And he wrote in the signature of Jesus this about himself. He said, in pensive moments, I wonder if I really have the courage to risk everything on the gospel of grace and accept the total sufficiency of Christ's redeeming work. My futile attempts at self-improvement, the sadness that I am not yet perfect, the boasting about my victories, my sensitivity to crit criticism and lack of self-acceptance, belie my profession of faith, Jesus is Lord. It's lip service from a shackled servant, still in bondage to the insecurity that wears a thousand masks, still lacking the courage to risk it all on him who is still thrashing about trying to fix myself, still struggling for the elusive achievement that will make me presentable to God. <clears throat> the risk that we are all called to is believing that we are beloved. And not because we've earned that title, but because God says that we are. I am like super ADD. Like when the doctor called 
to give me the results um, of the diagnosis. He used the term grossly ADHD. Like I'm like this close to being able to qualify for disability because I get that distracted. And the thing with ADHD is that um, your brain also has a really hard time with rejection. It can't quite process that. And so there is a lot of insecurity and hurt and my little neurodivergent brain structure has a hard time regulating anything that is perceived as criticism or rejection. I can go from fine to like deep self-loathing and zero to 60. So believe me when I say <clears throat> that I get that living into belovedness is a risky, risky thing. It's so much easier to want to prove worth or to show power or try to coerce people into loving us or needing us or make narratives where we come out ahead. And if we can't come out ahead, we can at least come out the victim. And yet belovedness doesn't require any of that. Belovedness is simply an open posture waiting to receive. Belovedness is risky. It's human. God made you and said that you were good. The risk is believing that. The risk is living like that is true. And the risk is to not listening to the loud voices that tell you who you are or who you should be, even if they sound really enticing. And it's from that place of belovedness that we learn to look at every other face that we encounter as the face of somebody else that God says is beloved. In Song of Solomon, it says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. I love that. So just for a moment, consider what would change in your life, in your conversations with others, in your internal conversations about yourself, in your relationships, in the way you risked, if you really lived like it was true, that you are his beloved, with you is well pleased. Um, I love that the sermon is just a segue into the important part which is coming to the table and keeping the feast together. I love that that is the moment that we all get to actively participate. We get to take in Jesus. We get to taste him. We get to feel him in our mouths and then swallow him and that nourishes us. It feeds our bodies and our souls. And yeah, as we come to the table today, Hold that word, beloved. Hold it in your hand as you're holding the bread and the cup. And consider what it would look like if you lived like that was really, truly true. Um, we're going to bring up the elements. And we got Jason coming up. Um, I had a thought, and I'm ADD. And I forgot what, oh, I remember, 
this is me and this is me on medication like just so you know um saint francis of assisi his last words that he said on his deathbed was i have done what is mine may christ show you what is yours to do and i love that because the risk is that we don't have to live a life that looks like anybody else's we get to live our own lives. We get to risk in the way that God has called us to risk. We get to be beloved in the way that God shows us that we are beloved. And so as we take these elements, as we take the, the bitter herbs, those bitterness, sin, and death, we can remember our humanness and Jesus' humanness. Let's come to the table and keep the feast.